Chapter Twenty of the Four Feathers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lewis. The Four Feathers by A. E. W. Mason. Chapter Twenty. West and East. Durrance found his body-servant waiting up for him when he had come across the fields to his own house of Gessens. "'You can turn the lights out and go to bed,' said Durrance, and he walked through the hall into his study. The name hardly described the room, for it had always been more of a gun-room than a study. He sat for some while in his chair, and then began to walk gently about the room in the dark. There were many cups and goblets scattered about the room, which Durrance had won in his past days. He knew them, each one, by their shape and position, and he drew a kind of comfort from the feel of them. He took them up, one by one, and touched them, and fondled them, wondering whether, now that he was blind, they were kept as clean and bright as they used to be. This one, a thin-stemmed goblet, he had won in a regimental steeplechase at Colchester. He could remember the day, with its clouds and gray sky and the dull look of the ploughed fields between the hedges. That pewter, which stood upon his writing-desk and which had formed a convenient holder for his pens, when pens had been of use, he had acquired very long ago in his college fours when he was a freshman at Oxford. The hoof of a favorite horse mounted in silver made an ornament upon the mantelpiece. His trophies made the room a gigantic diary. He fingered his records of good days gone by and came at last to his guns and rifles. He took them down from their racks. They were to him much what Ethne's violin was to her and had stories for his ear alone. He sat with a Remington across his knees and lived over again one long hot day in the hills to the west of Berenice, during which he had stalked a lion across stony open country and killed him at three hundred yards just before sunset. Another talked to him, too, of his first ibex shot in the Cor Baraka and of antelope stalked in the mountains northward of Suakin. There was a little greener gun, which he had used upon midwinter nights in a boat upon this very creek of the Salcombe estuary. He had brought down his first mallard with that, and he lifted it and slid his left hand along the underside of the barrel and felt the butt settle comfortably into the hollow of his shoulder. But his weapons began to talk over loudly in his ears even as Ethne's violin in the earlier days after Harry Feversham was gone and she was left alone, had spoken with too penetrating a note to her. As he handled the locks and was aware that he could no longer see the sights, the sum of his losses was presented to him in a very definite and incontestable way. He put his guns away, 
and was seized suddenly with a desire to disregard his blindness, to pretend that it was no hindrance, and to pretend so hard that it should prove not to be one. The desire grew and shook him like a passion, and carried him winged out of the countries of dim stars straight to the east. The smell of the east and its noises and the domes of its mosques the hot sun, the rabble in its streets, and the steel blue sky overhead caught at him till he was plucked from his chair and sat pacing restlessly about his room. He dreamed himself to Port Said, and was marshaled in the long procession of steamers down the waterway of the canal. The song of the Arabs coaling the ships was in his ears, and so loud that he could see them as they went at night-time up and down the planks between the barges and the deck an endless chain of naked figures monotonously chanting and lurid in the red glare of the braziers he travelled out of the canal past the red headlands of the cyanetic peninsula into the chills of the gulf of suez he zigzagged down the red sea while the great bear swung northward low down in the sky above the rail of the quarter-deck and the southern cross began to blaze in the south he touched at tor and at yambo he saw the tall white houses of yetta lift themselves out of the sea and admired the dark brine weathered woodwork of their carved casements he walked through the dusk of its roofed bazaars with the joy of the homesick after long years come home and from yetta he crossed between the narrowing coral reefs into the landlocked harbor of suakin westward from suakin stretched the desert with all that meant to this man whom it had smitten and cast out the quiet padding of the camel's feet in sand the great rock cones rising sheer and abrupt as from a rippleless ocean towards which you march all day and get no nearer, the gorgeous momentary blaze of sunset colors in the west, the rustle of the wind through the short twilight, when the west is a pure pale green and the east the darkest blue, and the downward swoop of the planets out of nothing to the earth, the inheritor of the other places dreamed himself back into his inheritance as he tramped to and fro forgetful of his blindness and parched with desire as with a fever until unexpectedly he heard the blackbirds and the swallows bustling and piping in the garden and knew that outside his window the world was white with dawn he waked from his dream at the homely sound there were to be no more journeys for him affliction had caged him and soldered a chain about his leg he felt his way by the balustrade up the stairs to his bed he fell asleep as the sun rose but at dongola on the great curve of the nile southwards of wadi halfa the sun was already blazing and its inhabitants were awake there was sport prepared for them this morning under the few palm-trees before the house of the emir wad el-nijurmi 
a white prisoner captured a week before close to the wells of el agia on the great arbane road by a party of arabs had been brought in during the night and now waited his fate at the emir's hands the news spread quick as a spark through the town already crowds of men and women and children flocked to this rare and pleasant spectacle in front of the palm trees an open space stretched to the gateway of the emir's house behind them a slope of sand descended flat and bare to the river harry feversham was standing under the trees guarded by four of the ansar soldiery his clothes had been stripped from him he wore only a torn and ragged jebba upon his body and a twist of cotton on his head to shield him from the sun his bare shoulders and arms were scorched and blistered his ankles were fettered his wrists were bound with a rope of palm fibre an iron collar was locked about his neck to which a chain was attached and this chain one of the soldiers held he stood and smiled at the mocking crowd about him and seemed well pleased like a lunatic that was the character which he had assumed if he could sustain it if he could baffle his captors so that they were at a loss whether he was a man really daft or an agent with promises of help and arms to the disaffected tribes of the Cordofan, then there was a chance that they might fear to dispose of him themselves and send him forward to Omdurman. But it was hard work. Inside the house the emir and his counselors were debating his destiny. On the river bank and within his view a high gallows stood out black and most sinister against the yellow sand. Harry Feversham was very glad of the chain about his neck and the fetters on his legs. They helped him to betray no panic by assuring him of its futility. These hours of waiting, while the sun rose higher and higher and no one came from the gateway, were the worst he had ever as yet endured. All through that fortnight in Berber a hope of escape had sustained him, and when that lantern shone upon him from behind in the ruined acres, what had to be done must be done so quickly there was no time for fear or thought. Here there was time, and too much of it. He had time to anticipate and foresee. He felt his heart sinking till he was faint just as in those distant days when he had heard the hounds scuffling and whining in a covert and he himself had sat shaking upon his horse he glanced furtively towards the gallows and foresaw the vultures perched upon his shoulders fluttering about his eyes but the man had grown during his years of probation the fear of physical suffering was not uppermost in his mind nor even the fear that he would walk unmanfully to the high gallows, but a greater dread that if he died now, here at Dongola, Ethne would never take back that fourth feather, and his strong hope of the afterwards would never come to its fulfillment. He was very glad of the collar about his neck and the fetters on his legs. He summoned his wits together, and standing there alone, without a companion to share his miseries, laughed and scraped and grimaced at his tormentors. An old hag danced and gesticulated before him, 
singing the while a monotonous song. The gestures were pantomimic, and menaced him with abominable mutilations. The words described in simple and unexpurgated language the grievous death agonies which immediately awaited him, and the eternity of torture in hell which he would subsequently suffer. Feversham understood and inwardly shuddered, but he only imitated her gestures and nodded and moaned at her as though she were singing to him of paradise. Others, taking their war trumpets, placed the mouths against the prisoner's ears and blew with all their might. "'Do you hear, Kefir?' cried a child, dancing with delight before him. "'Do you hear our ombayas? Blow louder! Blow louder!' But the prisoner only clapped his hands and cried out that the music was good. Finally there came to the group a tall warrior with a long, heavy spear. A cry was raised at his approach, and a space was cleared. He stood before the captive and poised his spear, swinging it backwards and forward, to make his arm supple before he thrust, like a bowler before he delivers a ball at a cricket match. Feversham glanced wildly about him, and, seeing no escape, suddenly flung out his breast to meet the blow but the spear never reached him, for as the warrior lunged from the shoulder, one of the four guards jerked the neck-chain violently from behind, and the prisoner was flung half-throttled upon his back. Three times, and each time to a roar of delight, this pastime was repeated, and then a soldier appeared in the gateway of Najumi's house. "'Bring him in!' he cried, and followed by the curses and threats of the crowd, the prisoner was dragged under the arch, across the courtyard, into a dark room. For a few moments Feversham could see nothing. Then his eyes began to adapt themselves to the gloom, and he distinguished a tall bearded man who sat upon an angarb, the native bedstead of the Sudan, and two others who squatted beside him on the ground. The man on the angarb was the emir. "'You are a spy of the government from Wadi Hafa,' he said. "'No, I am a musician,' returned the prisoner, and he laughed happily like a man that has made a jest. Najumi made a sign, and an instrument with many broken strings was handed to the captive. Feversham seated himself upon the ground, and with slow, fumbling fingers, breathing hard as he bent over the zither, he began to elicit a wavering melody. It was the melody to which Dorrance had listened in the streets of Talfiki on the eve of his last journey into the desert, and which Ethne Eustace had played only the night before in the quiet drawing-room at Southpool. It was the only melody which Feversham knew. When he had done, Nizumi began again. "'You are a spy!' I have told you the truth, answered Feversham stubbornly, and Najumi took a different tone. He called for food, and the raw liver of a camel covered with salt and red pepper was placed before Feversham. Seldom had a man had smaller inclination to eat, but Feversham ate none the less, even of that unattractive dish, knowing well that reluctance would be construed as fear, and that the signs of fear might condemn him to death. And while he ate, Najumi questioned him in the silkiest voice. 
about the fortifications of Cairo, and the strength of the garrison at Assouan, and the rumors of dissension between the Khedive and the Siddhar. But to each question Feversham replied, How should a Greek know of these matters? Nijumi rose from his angerib and roughly gave an order. The soldiers seized upon Feversham and dragged him out again into the sunlight. They poured water upon the palm rope which bound his wrist so that the thongs swelled and bit into his flesh. Speak, Kafir, you carry promises to the Kordofan. Feversham was silent. He clung doggedly to the plan over which he had so long and so carefully pondered. He could not improve upon it, he was sure, by any alteration suggested by fear, at a moment when he could not think clearly. A rope was flung about his neck, and he was pushed and driven beneath the gallows. Speak, Kafir, said Najumi, so shall you escape death. Feversham smiled and grimaced and shook his head loosely from side to side. It was astonishing to him that he could do it that he did not fall down upon his knees and beg for mercy. It was still more astonishing to him that he felt no temptation so to demean himself. He wondered whether the oft-repeated story was true that criminals in English prisons went quietly and with dignity to the scaffold, because they had been drugged. For without drugs he seemed to be behaving with no less dignity himself. His heart was beating very fast, but it was with a sort of excitement. He did not even think of Ethne at that moment. And certainly the great dread that his strong hope would never be fulfilled did not trouble him at all. He had his allotted part to play, and he just played it, and that was all. Najumi looked at him sourly for a moment. He turned to the men, who stood ready to draw away from Feversham the Angareb on which he was placed. "'Tomorrow,' said he, "'the Kaffir shall go to Omdurman.' Feversham began to feel then that the rope of palm fiber tortured his wrist. End of chapter 20